This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, it's just me, but I'm joined by Anusha Kelly and Patrick McGuire to talk about Amber Rudd's attempt to put a fresh lick of paint on the universal credit and to explain what's going on with Brexit. Although, of course, uh, the political focus is on Brexit and Patrick and I will be discussing that later on in the show, there is still a whole other apparatus of the state and there is, of course... I guess actually the biggest overall remaining government project is still their their flagship welfare policy, the universal credit. To discuss that, I'm joined by our senior writer and sort of social affairs, Maven Anusha Kellyan. So, yeah, you, you spotted a, a kind of another sort of bit of burying of bad news yesterday during the vote. So if you could tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so in a rather bleak pattern that's been developing, as if the Brexit votes weren't bleak enough, every time there's a vote coming up so far, the government has snuck out some bad news to do with austerity. So the first vote a couple of weeks ago, they snuck out a very big cut to people's benefits um, via a change in the rules for universal credit, which means that a couple where one person's a pensioner and one person isn't will be defined by the working age person in the couple rather than the pensioner. So that that could lead to up to £7,000 worth of, of cuts for people's households. So they snuck that through. Yesterday, when Theresa May brought her vote back to Parliament, yesterday afternoon, there was a written statement, which is a very sneaky way for the government to announce something because it's it's a quiet way of doing it without the minister actually having to stand before the Commons, saying that there will be a final sort of funding settlement for councils for 2019 to 2020, which is, you know, something that was announced provisionally in December, but they've sort of finalised their plans for how much money they're going to let councils have for those two years. And it is very meagre. And councils have been waiting on tenterhooks for, for this settlement in January, hoping that they're going to somehow fill, they've got an over £3 billion funding gap, hoping that the government is going to give them something actually substantial to, to fill that hole. Because as we know, councils 
councils are on the brink of collapsing and there was even a council Northamptonshire that did collapse last year because they are struggling to fund any of the public services that they need for their residents while funding the, the, their legally required services, which is basically now just adult social care because it's such a huge budget. And of course, with the ageing population, that cost is going up. I think we've talked before about this before on the podcast, the jaws of death, you know, kind of the, the money needed for social care going up. Yeah. One jaw, the, the amount of grant available to local authorities going down. I feel there are a couple of really significant policy impacts. The first is, it feels to me that the pattern basically since the election and maybe even before that, but yeah, definitely the kind of Hammond era pattern has effectively been kind of, no, there's going to be no money, no, there's going to be no money oh, something's collapsing, oh, we're going to borrow more in the in the next budget to kind of stave off a kind of immediate and systemic crisis. But, of course, it then also gets worse in the interim time while people are, are waiting for it. I guess kind of the question people are asking is, what is the thing that someone who is not in receipt of adult social care will immediately begin to notice because of this funding decision? Yeah, I mean, there has been extra money made available for potholes, for example, something that everyone notices, whether you're a motorist, whether you're a cyclist, whether you see the roads outside your house, which is pretty much everyone. But it's nowhere near enough either. You know, there's just so much damage in our local road system that means that that there's a huge hole of funding that the government has come nowhere near to filling. So that's one of the main things that you will notice if you go outside your front door and you you're not you're not in need of any other government services. Schools are another one, so you're likely to have children in school or know know what what's going on in the education sector because everyone's been to school, so everyone's interested in in the state of it. I went round a couple of schools, very different schools, um, a few weeks ago. One, a big secondary school in Kent in a relatively deprived area, and a small, very good primary school in Sheffield in a relatively affluent area, and both were basically falling apart at the seams you know in the in the Sheffield school there was a tile that had fallen from the girls toilets that had nearly missed the child it hadn't been replaced yet the library was was leaking to the point of of being flooded Um, And then in the Kent school, you know, I went to their special needs block, which was also their exclusion unit. They had one member of staff working full time there and they have so many children, the record number of children who are in care, who have special educational needs or who have complex mental health needs. Part of the problem of that is that councils are no longer providing that kind of early intervention for children who might have mental health needs so schools are picking up the slack so you'll notice it in schools as well yeah and I guess of course one of the the major changes which we last week passed the 50% mark on is the number of schools which are academies and if you are a small multi-academy trust or you're a, a loan provider and actually yeah one of the kind of the weird things in it feels in the DfE keeps trying to recreate this thing like maybe we could have a thing like a local education authority but called a different name because it's much more expensive to have someone to tackle your special education needs when you have the same number of pupils spread around the same number of schools before but you a single school have to afford a whole person whereas before of course you could effectively just rent a whole person intermittently from the LEA so there are yeah kind of loads and loads of sort of unexploded and in some cases exploding landmines. the kind of significant change you know a kind of in the social policy patch is of course an amber rudd has come in esther mcveigh has gone out making that i think so what that is now the fourth dwp secretary since ids the third i think so crab oh, no. yeah crab gawk 
Green. Oh, no, it's... Oh, it's loads. It's, yeah, it's even more than we thought. McVeigh and, and now Brad the fifth. Yeah, yeah, the fifth. So we've gone wow. from having one in one who went on six years to... What a, what a wall of fame that yeah. is. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, do you feel there has been any difference in this, this latest Secretary of State? Amber Rudd has had a lot of coverage since she became Secretary of State because her first outing before the Work and Pension Select Committee, she started making all of these hints that she wanted to reduce the waiting time for universal credit. She wanted to try and make sure that it was the main carer in the household who gets the the, the payment of the benefits. And she's also announced a few other tweaks, like uh, the two-child benefit will no longer apply retrospectively to families that didn't know about this policy before they had more than two children, which seems sort of... (laughs) As a concession, that's sort of quite meagre because it was such an unfair part of the policy in the first place. She's also said that she wants the benefit freeze to end next year, but it was obviously due for renewal next year anyway, so it's not exactly a radical change. So really what I'd say is that Amber Rudd has changed the tone on universal credit, but actually the things that she's announced to change the policy, while they have been welcomed by charities that have been campaigning for these things for, for a long time, are mainly for to give her some kind of like rhetorical boost rather than an actual change in people's circumstances who are receiving the benefit. Yeah, it does feel like it's essentially a piece with the end of austerity. Yeah, uh, exactly. Wh- yeah. yeah, which is basically all about going, okay, what are the bits of the cuts which are the most electorally painful potholes, obviously? Rough sleeping, which is the thing that they keep going, oh, we're going to tackle. They don't seem to have managed to effectively pause the kind of rise let alone send it into reverse while effectively going well okay what what are the bits of this that we can maintain that are not politically painful and do not cause sort of eruptions the two-child limit being sort of the uh, example mm. in the although there are many many reasons why the the child limit is a bad policy regardless of whether or not it's about children as yet unborn or children who currently exist broadly among voters as a whole the child limit is unpopular with existing children because people think that's unfair and the government going back on interference and fair with children who are yet unborn because people think oh well you've been irresponsible of course being irresponsible is a definition which includes an accident which can happen to anyone or someone being bereaved and meeting someone who also has children from a pre-existing relationship, exactly, etc. Yeah. Et it is just nonsense. The, you know, the argument that people make in favour of is nonsense from soup to nuts, but it is also one that is actually popular. And she has benefited from, and I feel this is probably going to be a theme this week, incredibly credulous coverage of it. You know, I saw someone describing her as one of the you know, the most dynamic minister in the in the cabinet and he's just like, I'm sorry, like getting rid of some grandfathered in cunts is not dynamism. I know, I it really does frustrate me and sometimes it drives me to the point where I, I'm questioning myself because even in papers like The Guardian that are so good on these topics, they'll repeat the government's spin that this is a reset of universal credit, which it absolutely is not. I was speaking to some civil servants the other day and when I expressed my cynicism about Amber Rudd's sort of compassionate universal credit rhetoric, they were like, what? No one dislikes Amber Rudd. How could you say that? So I think she's actually done a pretty good job of changing the image of that particular post in government. So I'll give her that. But I think, yes, when you were saying unexploded sort of things that are along the line, the government still hasn't released its green paper on how it wants to fund adult social care long term. It still hasn't explained what it wants to do with business rates, which obviously aren't working for councils anymore. It's only just opened its consultation on the fair funding formula for councils. So they have no long term certainty of how they're going to fund the services 
in future. And all of that is a massive burden on the NHS and the, the welfare budget. So, I mean, if she actually was a real radical working pension secretary, she'd be hammering on Philip Hammond's door and being like, when are we going to release these things? When are we going to actually have some long-term decisions? Yeah, yeah, and this is one of the, the weirdest challenges and it's how you avoid just letting people mark their own homework, something which I think most of the press kind of fails to do. Is that from a there are sort of two important angles. There's the policy thing where she and there's the political angle where she clearly is successfully identifying many of the things which are politically painful for the government and sanding those edges off. But Part of the reason why she's good at the latter is we have a a media industry which overwhelmingly conflates those two things. Anyway, I'm sure that that won't have any implications for the next part of the podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm joined for a sort of special You Ask Us by Patrick McGuire, our political correspondent, to kind of answer, or at least attempt to answer, I guess, the big question, which is, what is going to happen? Can any Brexit deal pass the House of Commons? And what happened last night slash Tuesday night, depending on when you are listening to this? Well, from last night, it's clear that any deal that unites Theresa May's internal coalition slash the Conservative Party plus the DUP is a deal that as yet doesn't exist now. We shouldn't dismiss the prospect that the EU27 will come back with something, some sort of legal assurance that is a change to the withdrawal agreement. It won't be a change to the binding text of the treaty, but they might give us a bolt-on or a codicil that changes its legal effect in some way. But that doesn't yet exist. Whatever they offer is very unlikely to be good enough for Conservative Brexiteers and the DUP. So we are then left with the only Brexit deal that can pass is one that is palatable to either the Labour leadership less likely because that means they're going to have to incur a lot of political pain for facilitating Brexit or a group of Labour MPs that takes its starting point, the 27 who defied the whip, to either vote for a harder Brexit, stop uh, any effort to delay it or abstain last night among the five front benches. So, I mean, it's a big swing coalition. It's only going to get bigger as time goes on, I think. I think I I broadly agree with that assessment, with I think sort of two provisos. The first is that, I just think Downing Street is not aware of, I mean, Theresa May's capacity to convince herself of things which she not only knows weren't true, but she must know, she knew were actively against her interest a week or even a day ago is truly phenomenal. Because the thing that Downing Street was very clear on, correctly so, 
was that the thing about reopening the withdrawal agreement is the second you reopen, the withdrawal agreement gets worse because you end up with Spain going, oh, we want a little more on Gibraltar. You will have people going, we want a little bit more on fishing, a little bit more on... And I basically cannot conceive of a situation in which, I mean, one, she's not going to get something tangible on the backstop. In terms of the policy objection people have to the backstop, that is not going to change. It, It will be, there's already a lot in the withdrawal agreement itself about the backstop being temporary about you know best endeavors and all that that's not good enough and they're not going to give anything you know that's substantially meatier than that yeah and crucially any change will also come with further changes to the withdrawal agreement on the other side i think though the, the thing i i kind of disagree with is i am actually not convinced that the labor leadership won't end up whipping to facilitate so the crucial thing yesterday than yesterday showed where, you know, the House voted for another one of its we don't like no deal but motions and doesn't do anything. It then voted against Greaves' amendment to have indicative votes on where the House goes next, which would actually have had some degree of purpose. And then it also voted against uh, Yvette Cooper's amendment to extend the Article 50 process. Now, I mean, parliamentary votes, particularly in a hung parliament, are always weird coalitions of interests. But I think it feels to me that the group, the groups of people who contributed to the defeat of Cooper's amendment across all the parties were, A, although I'm yet to meet a Labour MP who believes that Yvette Cooper does secretly want to keep us in the EU, a number of people who do not want a second referendum were like, look, this, this has to be flattened, because if it's not flattened, then it creates the idea that this could happen, which delays us reaching an accord, which means we might have no deal. We just need to, to, to indicate that there is not a majority in the, in the House for, for stopping Brexit. The second was, is also, there are people who voted against Cooper's deal who are sympathetic to a second referendum, because their view is that they could say to their constituents, yeah, we're having another one, Yo, no deal is on the ballot. You can have your thing. I think no remain is better. But they couldn't say to the we've extended it for what? And there are still plenty of Conservative MPs and ministers who will vote, however, whatever way is necessary to prevent no deal in March. But if, but, but if the choice is so heavily circumscribed yeah. that it is literally the only way to stop no deal is her deal, and that looks increasingly likely. I mean, one suggestion I heard last night was that actually. You know, this is all still in play because after the vote on the 14th of February, Labour will take another another no-confidence motion. And at that point, someone posited to me, you know, you have your Bowleses, your Wollastons, who at that point will be alive to the possibility of no deal and will do their vote in any way possible thing and vote for the motion no-confidence. Now, I still think that's too early and the likelihood is the choice is increasingly looking like a straight one between a deal that Theresa May brings before the Commons and no deal, and the only way to stop no deal and affect the will of the House expressed through the Jack Dromey and Caroline Spellman amendment is to vote for it or a modified form of it that's palatable to Labour MP. Yeah, I, I think that is exactly right. I I don't really buy the argument. Yeah, I mean, I think things like yeah, the, the majority of pro-second referendum MPs rightly believed that yesterday was a crushing defeat, which is why so many of them were in such gloomy spirits afterwards. And I think the people going, oh, actually, this is an, a, a moving process. People will, will move. That, that is true. However, it is also a moving process that goes through a line of things that you are willing to say to your constituents. And if you're not willing to say, I've delayed this for three months, right? If a motion to delay for three months, fronted by the literal poster child of, don't worry, I like small towns and hate immigrants too. You know, someone who has so much credibility with 
Okay, with not that all, sort of yeah, Labour MP. Not all of those Labour. Yeah, some of those Labour MPs are people who, who do not have much affection for Yvette Cooper, and that's also one of the subplots. But there are a number of people who, if one was drawing up a list of people who you would expect to have backed Yvette Cooper in 2015, uh, and indeed did then go on to back Yvette Cooper and have voted against that, right? We are talking about someone with immense credibility with that part of the Labour Party. If they can't deliver the votes of those people for an extension, the idea that those people are going to vote for a Chukra Amuna amendment to have another referendum or a Jeremy Corbyn amendment to have another referendum, it's for the birds, right? It, it is a, an utterly crazy notion. And I think that the fact that that is widely realised in Parliament, I was at say in Westminster, that is clearly not widely realised in Westminster because you had a number of people who, who cover politics who were saying, oh, you know, this will increase the pressure on him to have a second referendum, a calculation which is, cannot be supported with, with any kind of a reasonable analysis of, of where, where the balance of power within the opposition is. I think, yeah, the central dynamic will be something essentially identical to the deal on the table with the question of whether or not there has been someone tweeted, I mean, I was just like, look, this is, going to almost certainly pass in this form when, yeah, the only question is going to be whether or not a customs union or customs arrangement or whatever May wants to call it, and basically who gets to go, I have won on this customs issue, Mm -hmm. um, which is the view of pretty much almost every Labour MP I spoke to yesterday. Some of them were very cheerful about it. Some of them were were ashen-faced and dispirited about such a a distant Brexit. But yeah, I just think that that basically is is where the mood of the House clearly is. Yeah, and I think it's certainly where the mood of the Labour leadership is. So none of us can see into the future, but given what we know about Labour's internal coalition, given we know what about their sort of strategic long-term objectives in terms of keeping their electoral coalition together... And given the tone we heard last night from Corbyn, who accepted that invitation despite the and chose to interpret the uh, the Dromey Spellman Amendment as taking no deal off the table, even though it hasn't, John McDonald said similar. You know, they're in the business now of affecting the will of the House, and they're going to do that by, as Richard Bergen said last night, a great British compromise, which you know is a polite way of saying we're going to vote for Theresa May's deal, but we're going to pretend it's not her deal anymore. Yeah, and I think that is essentially where we are. And I think the open question, which so I, I wrote my kind of first, you know, what will go on in the Peterborough by-election piece. Someone went, oh, you know, they basically went, oh, you know, the Conservatives will win. And I was just like, well, there's going to be a recall process, which is going to take six weeks from the appeal ending. So we are talking about a by-election probably at the earliest in April, which basically, given the amount of unknown unknowns about the, the next couple of months, feels a bit like going, you know, predict the result of the 2038 election. Because, yeah, the the big question, I think, is in terms of Labour's internal coalition, is will people believe that the Labour Party has done all it could have done? Or will it feel that we could have had a reversed Brexit if the Labour Party had shouted louder, as it Mm -hmm. were? What the leadership probably needs, and it's not going to happen because people's vote campaigners know themselves they would fail, is a straight people's vote motion to be voted on and defeated by a landslide in the Commons. Now, I don't really see the juncture at which that's going to happen now, given actually that despite their the tough talk from some of them, the, the, the savvier ones of that movement know it ain't happening. So I wonder whether there needs to be sort of conclusive, quantifiable proof that the second referendum, beyond sort of, you know, us crunching the numbers and saying, look, a Labour whip would never work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, yeah. there needs to be sort of quantifiable proof. So Corbyn can go, look, I was up for this, we tried our best, but yeah. we couldn't get our election, we couldn't get the referendum, 
here's our deal. You know, obviously, yeah, the central dynamic of Brexit is, you know, there aren't enough Conservative rebels to overcome the Labour rebels to stop Brexit, and perhaps there aren't even enough to soften Brexit, although I think that is, that is less clear. But the other interesting dynamic this week, which of course we saw with the immigration bill, which weirdly it was a carbon copy of the control on immigration mug, because obviously the policy didn't change with the control on immigration mug. It's just the mug came out and people went, wow, that's your policy. Labour's whip didn't change. They were being whipped to abstain. Then the whip changed from you turn up and abstain to it's fine, you can go home. People got very angry and the Labour Party changed its stance. Which I think shows that although it I think will be very easy for the Labour Party to go into an election pledging to honour Brexit, I think it would be impossible for a Labour government to itself do a Brexit that ended the right to free movement. Mm. Which is interesting because even without any movement on the Labour part Labour front bench willingly, that does get you into a much softer Brexit position. And I think that is probably the most interesting part of where we are in terms of what happens after the next election and with various parties' manifestos is, you know, Parliament, I think, will facilitate May's deal, which obviously only covers exit. But in terms of the future relationship, I think the people who are saying, actually, we think that we can get a softer exit deal than the one on the table are probably right. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleagues Patrick Maguire and Anoush Shikelian. It's recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is licensed under Creative Commons. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.